Hello, everyone. In this edition of the Vice Potential Podcast, we'll be talking about Aaron Burr. This is the Super Bowl of these podcasts because there's simply so much to talk about. Burr has been a controversial and reviled figure even in his own time. In the years since Burr's death, popular culture and historians haven't exactly been so kind either. In fact, thanks to a very popular musical, you probably already know a little bit about Aaron Burr already. He was a vice president. He shot and killed Alexander Hamilton and was said to have masterminded a scheme designed to make himself the king of Mexico. Wait, wait, what? There wasn't a song about that? Well, well, maybe there should have been one. I mean, that was pretty important. On February 6, 1756, Aaron Burr was born in Newark, New Jersey, to the Reverend Burr and his wife Esther. On the surface, the Burr family seemed blessed and well-to-do. The elder Burr was a highly regarded preacher and scholar. In fact, Burr Sr. was the second-ever president of the College of New Jersey, which we would all know a little bit better by the name they picked over a hundred years after that, Princeton University. The good times, however, would be rather short-lived. In less than a year of Aaron being born, the family's matriarch and patriarch would die of disease, which orphaned their children. Aaron and his older sister Sarah then moved in with their grandmother, only to have her die shortly after as well. Eventually, Burr's 21-year-old uncle Timothy Edwards stepped in to raise them. Now, before you ask... Uncle Timothy lived quite a long time, happy life and everything, so don't worry about him at all. He's going to be great. The new and rather unique family settled into the peaceful suburbs of Elizabeth, New Jersey, and began a simple and normal life. Aaron Burr may have grown up without a father, but he was constantly surrounded by the memory of him as a scholar and a gentleman. To live up to this legacy, Aaron Burr devoted himself to schooling and was obsessive about bettering himself. After failing to secure admission to the College of New Jersey, you know, the place where his dad had been president about a decade ago? Jeez, just let the kid in. Burr walked into local libraries and put himself through an academy-level curriculum, which included learning three languages. Burr would finally be accepted to the school when he was 13 years old. The world of college was an absolute delight to Burr, both from an educational and social perspective. Burr joined whatever clubs were available to him. In these societies, he learned early on that connections made socially could be used in the real world. Although the stage was rather small at the time, you know, he was 13, 14 at a school, he found that he excelled at it, and he wrote that one down as something that he could later work on. The plan for Burr originally was to follow in his father's footsteps and train for the ministry, which he stayed an extra year at school to work towards. But at the age of 19, he gave up theology to study law. 
Although Burr was the son and grandson of well-regarded theologians, he could not fully embrace the Calvinistic attitude so important to his forebears. As Burr was assumed to have said, the road to heaven was open to all alike, and therefore he could not give himself fully to the devotion that made for a convincing and profitable preacher. Oh, and by the way, he also loved prostitutes. I mean, really, it became a bit of a problem, and he wasn't even quiet about it, but but that's a conversation for a different day. Instead, let's just leave it as Aaron Burr didn't really want to go into theology. He really wanted to be a lawyer, so he went home to study and intern and get into that field. However, almost as quickly as these legal studies began, they had to stop. In 1775, word had spread about the fighting at Lexington and Concord, which caused Burr and his friends to drop everything and join the revolutionary cause. This was something of an odd choice, because Burr at the time was very apolitical, and didn't seem the type for military service. To me, Burr was a restless youth out to test himself, and like so many men of his generation, he decided what better than the crucible of war to do it. As a soldier, Aaron Burr volunteered for what many in the army considered a suicide mission. General Benedict Arnold, yeah, that one, was leading an expedition to Canada to bring the fight to the British there. The trip would include a 385-mile trek into the dangerous and unknown Canadian wilderness. Oh yeah, and then of course you had to dodge bullets along the way while you did it. Bird's family begged him to take another assignment, but he was determined to do it anyway. Despite a grueling march, Burr managed to not only survive the trip to Canada himself, but he helped others do it too. In doing so, he earned the respect of General Arnold. Upon arriving in Canada, Aaron Burr was assigned the task of escorting General Richard Montgomery from his recent victory in Montreal back to Quebec to join up with Arnold's forces. According to what we know, Arnold wrote the following letter of introduction to be presented to Montgomery. This is Aaron Burr, a very young man of much life and activity who has acted with great spirit on our march. On the trip back, uh, Montgomery took a shine to the young Burr and made him his aide to camp. The reasons for the appointment are unclear, but after being in the armed forces for less than three months, Burr had already gotten the attention of two major generals. Not a bad start. Although the Quebec campaign would be a famous failure, Burr managed to bring himself to national attention by participating in a moment that was crucial to winning both hearts and minds. On the battlefield, Burr was said to have put his commanding officer, General Montgomery, on his back and attempted to carry him through gunfire in a retreat. Unfortunately, General Montgomery died due to his wounds, and Burr failed to move the body all that far, but the effort shown by the act resonated with people. In fact, a famous poem was written about the battle and Burr's actions. Now, did this moment actually occur? No one can be sure, including the people that were actually there. So I think it's a bit of myth-making that the American Revolution needed to find its heroes, and Aaron Burr absolutely was one of those. The poem and the story increased recruitment by huge amounts. You know, we can't be sure if this actually happened, and we're still fighting over it today, but the important thing is that it boosted Burr's presence in the national consciousness and also inside the military, 
where they were looking for young leaders. Burr was more than just a brave guy who was in the right place at the right time. He was already earning a reputation for his honesty, dedication, and smarts. Burr was such a quick riser that he was placed on General Washington's personal staff in Manhattan. Washington had a habit of collecting and cultivating talent, which led to a cadre of smart young men in his employ. While in Washington's spear, Burr had one of his first run-ins with one of those bright young stars, the current aide-de-camp, Alexander Hamilton. If you know nothing about Burr, underline Hamilton. His name is going to come up a bunch. Despite being considered a rather cushy and potentially lucrative gig, Burr resigned the office with Washington after one battle, an outright disaster in Long Island. Burr wanted to be his own man, to build his own legacy, and not simply be one of Washington's family of backbiting and careering junior officers, which he thought every single one of them were, including Alexander Hamilton. Burr was reassigned to General Israel Putnam, who was at the time a legend in the Virginia American Army. Putnam, a veteran of the French and Indian War, was said to have dropped his plow and raced to Bunker Hill to lead troops in the famous battle. However, some of the shine had dulled on his star due to some rough recent defeats. Putnam was said to have carried himself without refinement due to his lack of established education and humbled origins. However, Putnam knew the business of war-making and earned a reputation as an honest, gruff, aggressive, fair, and caring person to his soldiers. Burr quickly rose to be Putnam's top aide and dearest friend. Away from Washington's endless assistant, Burr was tasked with actual, real, difficult administrative tasks and coordinating of operations, instead of just standing around and looking at maps all day. From this vantage point, Burr began to see Washington's failings at Fort Washington, Fort Lee, and Long Island, although he wouldn't formally comment comment on them, at least at this time. In fairness, Burr and Putnam didn't exactly fare very well either, They lost a couple of uh, minor battles and uh, didn't exactly get away scot-free. However, despite some of the failings on the battlefield, Burr came up for promotion many times, and he fumed as he was passed over time and time again by men who did less but campaigned more. Burr thought that reward should come from hard work and not by begging. Since he refused to plead and play the game, he remained rather low on the totem pole. Burr eventually was named a colonel, but he was assigned the hard work of guarding Westchester County under a privateer, William Malcolm. Malcolm was a wealthy shipping magnate playing its soldier, who had no military credentials other than the fact that he could pay the American government a lot of money. The task was dangerous, as Westchester was a no-man's land where rival armies passed each other quite often, they raided the land for supplies, and engaged in more unlawful activities on the local populace. However, it was an important job, due to the access to the Hudson River, which had to be maintained. In my amateur understanding, which ultimately is nothing more than speculation, it seems Washington respected Burr, 
at least somewhat, to give him such a difficult assignment, but put him under an inferior general. So perhaps Washington knew he could have a good man in that slot who knew his place, but lacked the opportunity for wins and glory that would allow him for tons of support, which could push him further up the ranks. Perhaps too much Game of Thrones and Roman history there, but eh, just my two cents. After some time in Westchester, many men that Burr respected, such as his former commanding officer Israel Putnam and Charles Lee, were either heavily demoted or court-martialed for seemingly political reasons. Although General Lee was a hard man to like, Burr respected him and was present at the Battle of Monmouth, the conflict which saw Lee court-martialed. At Monmouth, Lee had been scandalized for disobeying orders, leading a shameful retreat, and disrespecting his commanding officer, which led to the loss of the battle. Privately, Burr blamed Washington's poor generalship for the defeat, and also, once again, his careering and backbiting junior officers. But he wasn't going to admit that, at least not for now, although he's getting close. These incidents, more personal betrayals, sickness, and seeing a lack of opportunities to advance himself, caused Burr to resign from the army in March of 1779. However, Burr wasn't completely done with the military. In between going home and picking up his legal studies, he would join Washington's cadre of spies and work on special assignments when the need arose. Three years later, in 1782, Burr passed the bar, moved his new family, which included the brilliant widow of a British soldier, and began his legal practice in New York City. During this time, Manhattan had just been abandoned by the British, who left the city torched, windows broken, streets cracked, and just about everything badly in need of repairs. Burr was not attracted to New York for its bright lights and rather large stage, because at the time, it could be seen as rather small and dim. What he craved was an opportunity, and always to better and advance himself. Luckily for Burr, the political and social atmosphere was strongly in need of young men of his ilk that were on the make. The new American government went hard against Tories, or British sympathizers, and passed a series of laws which enabled their estates to be sold at auction, debts owed to them could be delayed, and they could be sued for occupying their own property. With few lawyers in uh, New York City at the time, probably the only time in the history of our country you could ever say that the sentence that there were few lawyers in New York City, and many petitioners, Burr was quick to find clients. Burr very often defended clients that were patriots, folks that were on hard times and needed the money to stay out of debtors' prisons. Frequently, on the other side of the aisle, was Alexander Hamilton, who defended the more well-to-do citizens. In Hamilton's defense, the anti-Tory laws were rather unjust and certainly un-American, if such an idea had even existed yet. To Hamilton, Burr may have seemed like an ambulance chaser, appearing in debtor's court and fighting over small sums of money and exploiting loopholes to do it. Burr, on the other hand, saw such cases as his entree into the legal field to the community of New York City and help people who really needed his assistance. Like most men engaged in the law, Burr was involved in politics almost as an afterthought. 
Burr served as a New York State Assemblyman in 1784 and 1785, but he probably would tell you he had no idea what he was doing or why he was even there. Burr was so uninvolved, he didn't even show up for three weeks, and no one noticed. Following that short period, Burr gave politics no more mind until he stepped in to support a friend. This friend was Richard Yates, who had worked with Burr and helped him pass the bar. Yates was running for governor and needed all the help he could get because he was running against the titan of New York politics, George Clinton. Although Yates was technically of a different political party than Burr normally supported, it didn't matter so much because a friend was a friend and you do the right thing to help him out anyways. Little did Burr know that by this one simple act, he was putting his hat into a deadly and complicated political arena. Unfortunately, or fortunately for fans of New York City history, we have to take a brief detour into the political scene at that time. The two largest parties were the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. As you can probably tell by their names, they got along really well all the time and never disagreed about anything. To make a long and detailed political philosophy short, they were fighting the same small government, large government, landed gentry versus the middle class debate that we're still having today. In New York politics, there were three ruling families. The Livingstons, who came from very old money. Then there were the Scholliers, who came from the same genteel background but lacked as much power as the Livingstons, although they were gaining. Lastly, there were the Clintons, who prided themselves on being self-made men and staunch anti-federalists. Now, back to our story. Burr agreed to work on the Yates campaign, who was running as a Federalist. One of Yates's other ardent supporters was, you guessed it, Alexander Hamilton. From what we know, Hamilton didn't know Yates well or really care about his campaign or even particularly like him. Hamilton was seeking merely to raise a contender to his rival Clinton. Yates lost the election, but Burr came to the attention of the victorious George Clinton anyway. Although Burr had backed a rival, Clinton saw an opportunity to get his own Alexander Hamilton. Now, here is why Clinton wanted one. The arrival of Alexander Hamilton in New York City had been monumental and saw to it that in only a few short years had risen the Scholliers, whom uh, Hamilton had married into, into new notoriety and power. Clinton more than likely saw Burr as a as a similar man of youth, intelligence, good breeding, and cunning, whom he thought would be easy to control and manipulate. Clinton took Burr under his wing and propelled him into high office almost immediately, which really speaks to the state of politics at the time and cronyism. Thanks to Clinton's strong support and molding, Burr was elected New York State Attorney General in 1789. The rocket ride only continued as with Clinton's further support, Burr found himself a United States senator, beating the well-thought-of and established candidate, Philip Scheuer, who was, guess whose father-in-law? That's right, Alexander Hamilton. How did these guys just not kill each other at this point? Hamilton, the son that Washington never had, and Burr, Washington's necessary but neglected black sheep. Oh, it's like Shakespeare. In 1792, Burr took a run at being governor, but eventually decided to drop out at the behest of George Clinton. 
There was talk of supporting Burr as a vice presidential candidate, which interested him greatly, but he opted to not follow through due to the machinations of, well, you know who by now. As a senator, Burr dedicated himself to being a gentleman's devil and fought against the establishment of Washington, Hamilton, and John Jay attacked Hamilton's financial strategy, Washington's foreign policy, and John Jay's establishment as an envoy to Great Britain. In addition to that, Burr took the then-controversial opinion of increasing the military presence on the, on the frontier. In 1796, to the shock, scandal, and horror of his contemporaries, Aaron Burr did the unthinkable. He campaigned for the job of vice president. Sure, a candidate could give speeches and promote himself, but not with the naked self-interest that Burr had brought to bear. Burr's efforts included meeting with Washington insiders, interacting with the people of New York on the street, and more. Eventually, Burr had won the support of many politicians. However, when it came time to vote, things went far differently. The idea was this. Burr would ask his supporters to vote for Thomas Jefferson, who in turn would ask his supporters to use their secondary vote on him, essentially garnering Jefferson and Burr a near tie. However, come election day, Burr was abandoned by Jefferson's men. Burr ended up finishing a humiliating fourth in the election. Jefferson, however, ended up second, especially with some help from Aaron Burr's voters, and due to the rules of the day, he got to be the vice president to John Adams. Although the embarrassment of being abandoned by friends and colleagues was bad, Burr was also broke, which was far worse. Like nearly everyone Burr knew, he borrowed quite a bit of money. There were bribes to be paid, prospective clients entertained, power brokers to wine and dine, and also the keeping up of appearances. On June 27, 1797, Burr was so broke that he sold his Richmond Hill property for $32,000 to cover his debts. As a bit of a fun fact, the property was purchased by John Jacob Astor, who divided the land into smaller lots and rebranded it as Greenwich Village. So the next time you find yourself in the village, remember, you're walking through Aaron Burr's backyard. Although broke, Aaron Burr could not leave politics or was so intertwined with it that there was no other way forward. Burr opted to refocus and decided not to seek re-election to the Senate because he feared another embarrassment and, let's be honest, he didn't really have the money to run. Instead, Burr took what seemed to be a step backwards by going back to the New York Assembly. The last time he was there in the Assembly, he was a political novice, now he had been schooled in the fine arts and was ready to play. Depending on who you want to believe, Burr is either going to pull nearly every underhanded, backroom-dealing, evil political trick in the modern playbook about a hundred years before anyone else would even think about it, or he played a masterful Game of Thrones fashion-style game. Burr turned a do-nothing job in the New York Assembly and used it as a platform to build his power base. One of his first moves was to violently oppose the Alien and Sedition Acts, which made it legal for the president to imprison and deport dangerous immigrants. Sound familiar? 
and criminalize the uh, issuing of false statements that were critical against the government. Burr thought these acts screamed of tyranny, which they do, and they still do. And by opposing them, Burr earned the love and support of immigrants who had always been so crucial to the state of New York. Just when things were about to get back on track, Burr's old enemies reappeared. John Adams offered him the post of Brigadier General of the United States Army in the quasi-war against France. However, for the posting to be made official, it had to be rubber-stamped by George Washington, who came out of retirement to lead the army. As you would expect, Washington appointed Hamilton instead and shot Burr's appointment down and even said this, By all that I have known and heard, Colonel Burr is a brave and able officer, but the question is whether he has not equal talents at intrigue. Ouch! Basically calling Burr underhanded and referring to him secondhand like you didn't know him personally? Quite a lot of shade from the big man. Although down, Burr was not out. He remembered his lessons from college about social clubs and became an active member in all of them. Once a member, Burr would turn organizations like the soon-to-be-famous Tammany Society and forge them into voting blocks for his political machine. Why was Burr doing all of this? Because the key to getting back to the majors was securing the one and only currency that seemed to matter. Votes. New York would be nominating 12 electors to the presidential election of of 1800. If all 12 were Republicans, that would mean Burr could control 15% of the votes required to win. Maybe Jefferson and others would respect him then. One of Burr's other projects, or perhaps tricks, would be to not only form a bank, which would be a power base for his allies like Thomas Jefferson, but to get the opposing party, the Federalists, to help him do it. You see, in New York, there was a terrible outbreak of malaria in the summer of 1799. Burr offered legislation that everyone could get behind, the formation of a water company, which would better organize and order the supply and ensure quality. Hamilton, a believer in large central government, leaped at the bill and supported it. Once the votes were secured, Burr was more than happy to inform everyone that there was a provision in the bill which allowed him to use the remaining funds not used in the water company on whatever projects he wanted to. Surprise, surprise, Burr revealed these intentions to be a bank. The company would now be called the Bank of Manhattan because fuck you, that's why. By establishing the bank, Burr undercut the monopoly of rivals and strengthened his position by providing loans to working class people and allowed middle class folks to be bank investors, which made him very popular. Oh, and as a postscript, the malaria outbreak went uncontained and thousands of people died. But Burr got his bank. As you can probably guess, Hamilton was pretty peeved. Not by the malaria thing, but because he had been duped. What could he do about it? Nothing. The charter included provisions that it did not ever have to be renewed as long as the company provided some water to the city and could never be dismantled. Frank Underwood probably took some notes. After the success of the bank and securing all 12 electors to the Republican side, 
Burr was called to Monticello by Jefferson, where the pair met and discussed their plans. No one quite knows what was said in this meeting, but what follows should give you an idea of at least the aspirations of one man. In the election of 1800, the new school and old school came to head. Informally, it was agreed upon that Aaron Burr would be the vice president with Jefferson taking the lead. Burr and Jefferson were said to have been cordial with each other, but never socialized directly during the formal election process. Jefferson campaigned the old way, staying aloof from the business of the election, even though he badly wanted to win. To this end, Jefferson issued orders to friends, senators, and employees to go spread the good word, while he appeared rather surprised at all the support. Burr, on the other hand, uh, campaigned like a modern politician. This, once again, was a scandal for Burr. A man of Burr's means wasn't supposed to have been so crass at going after political office and power. It was just unseemly. Although the establishment and allegedly Jefferson didn't like it, Burr was wildly successful in his efforts. Also, that guaranteed 15% of the vote the ticket needed to win didn't hurt either. The idea, as with before, was that Jefferson would receive the most votes, and although Burr would finish in second, he would receive a little less so that everyone knew who was running the show. To Jefferson's surprise, when the votes were tallied up, he tied with Aaron Burr. I know, what a shock. Burr was surprised as well. To break the tie, the House of Representatives was employed, where Burr had a lot of friends. Also, many on the Federalists, a.k.a. the opposing side, thought that Burr was the lesser of two evils and were willing to vote for him instead of Jefferson, who they just couldn't stand. After 36 ballots, Jefferson eventually won, but not before probably confirming everything he thought of Burr. Now, it has never been proven that Burr did anything to try to curry votes, but it seems, well, likely. This election was so heavily contested, confusing, frustrating, and possibly nation-breaking, they passed the law against it ever happening again. (laughs) Following the election of 1800, the runner-up would no longer be named vice president. Each office would be voted for on separate ballots from the start. However, since this law was not in place yet, Burr was named as vice president despite all of the conflict. Despite many attempts by Burr to prove otherwise, Jefferson believed that Burr had tried to steal the election and told all of his friends about it. Definitely a rocky start to the formal Burr-Jefferson presidency. Despite all this, Burr played the role of vice president rather well, saying all the right things about President Jefferson and supporting him. Once both men were sworn in, the bill came due. Burr received countless letters from friends and colleagues asking for cushy government jobs, benefits for their states, promotions, kickbacks, and more. To Burr, this was the cost of doing business, and he was rather surprised when Jefferson was shocked and blocked all of his efforts. Apparently, Jefferson liked sausage, but he didn't like to see it get made. As a bit of vengeance, Jefferson did grant a few favors, but allowed George Clinton's nephew to give out the appointments in New York State, ensuring that when Burr returned home, it would be a far different political climate than the one he had left. 
To make matters worse, the election for New York City mayor was coming up, and for reasons unknown, Burr threw his support away from the Clinton family and to a friend. A rare and stupid blunder. By doing that, he turned on the family that essentially gave him his career, and the Anti-Federalist Party turned against him completely. Out of the power and patronage game, Burr focused on the job of vice president, which many, including his rivals, thought he did rather well. Burr was said to have been well-researched, detail-oriented, gave impartial rulings, and was ultimately fair. The problem for Burr was that he had money troubles, and his power was decreasing rather rapidly. Many thought he was getting close to rival Federalists socially in an attempt to start his own party, but I think he was just trying to make some contacts and trying to survive this thing if he could. Seeing the writing on the wall that Jefferson was going to have no interest in bringing him back on, Burr removed his name from consideration for vice president. Burr spoke with Jefferson and tried to salvage the relationship and try to understand what had happened. According to Jefferson, Burr was so scandal-ridden that, that he had undone the goodwill of the people and Jefferson couldn't be associated with that. Burr attempted to defend himself, but was unable to get the result he wanted. Instead, Burr asked that although he would step down and get out of the way, he needed some mark of distinction from the president so that after he left the office, he could go survive. He could go do something. Jefferson was not in the mood to give that sort of recommendation out and did not. Instead, Burr wanted to go back to New York become governor, consolidate more power, and then let the rest of it work itself out. To make things all the better, the guy Burr had to beat for the office was some guy named Morgan Lewis, who no one's ever heard of. Sadly for Burr, New York turned their backs on him, either because of his scandalous actions or the fact that he couldn't provide the jobs he promised. Burr ran as an independent and campaigned hard. When it came time for the votes to be counted, Burr lost, and not just by a little bit. It was the largest loss in the history of the state. Burr's first reaction to this was to blame Alexander Hamilton. That bastard probably spent all the time Burr was in Washington running his mouth and ruining Burr's reputation in New York, which was all true. Hamilton and Burr confronted each other, and neither would back down about it. So we got a duel! Slight problem, though. In New York, dueling was illegal and punishable by, of all things, death. So the pair agreed to have their duel in New Jersey, where dueling was still illegal, but the penalty was far less severe. On July 11th, 1804, in Weehawken, New Jersey, at the dueling grounds, where Hamilton's own son, Philip, died about three years before, the two men squared off. Historians constantly debate about who shot first, what the intentions of each of the men were. However, let's focus on the facts. Burr's shot struck Hamilton's hip, where Hamilton's shot missed altogether. Hamilton then returned to New York, where he died shortly after from his wound. Burr was brought up on multiple charges, including murder. Not wanting to stick around and, you know, face the music, Burr fled to South Carolina to lay low with his daughter and her family for a while. 
Eventually, the charges were dropped, and Burr returned to Washington to close out his term as vice president. Once back in the Senate, Burr was met with a mixture of disgust and, oddly enough, support. The Federalists, a.k.a. the party of Hamilton, hated Burr, and rightly so, while the other side embraced him. It has been said that Jefferson and other luminaries on that side of the aisle were kinder to Burr than they had ever been. Sadly for Burr, it wasn't because he was a really great guy and the shooting wasn't such a big deal. It's just that he had to make a, make a very important ruling in a few months, and they wanted to get in on his good graces. Once his term in the vice presidency ended, Burr found himself rather alone, embarrassed by his defeat to a political nobody, scandalized by the murder of Alexander Hamilton, and a clear enemy of the President of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, who won re-election, by the way. Burr was also broke once again. Burr had been generous to a fault, always willing to lend friends money, supporting young folks, many rumored to be his own kids, by the way, and entertaining wildly despite being penniless. Kind of reminds me of Julius Caesar's early career there. On the run from creditors, Aaron Burr set his sights west, where he could rebuild away from the prying eyes of his enemies. What happens on this journey is one of the most hotly debated topics in American history. Was Aaron Burr a traitor? In the next episode, we will talk about island mansions, incest, cabals with the Spanish government, private armies, court cases, political insanity involving three future presidents, and much, much more. You don't want to miss this one. It is among the wildest and most interesting stories in American history. So hopefully I'll catch you for that one. Because if you only listen to one podcast, let that be the one. It's just insane. Anyways, I've been your host, Dan Berkman. I'd like to thank you once again for taking the time to listen to my little show here. If you have any comments about the show or just want to talk to me in general, you can always get a hold of me at vppodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody, and I'll see you next time. Good night.